Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and today's guest is one who has brought me a challenge in outlining the increase and decrease intraocular pressure algorithm that was published in the July 2019 Clinician's Brief. I have yet to create a podcast around an algorithm. So uh, Dr. Allison Claude, thank you so much for the challenge today and for being here. Thank you for having me, Becky. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to talk about this because truly I found the algorithm really neat. And we've, we, you know, before we started recording, talked a little bit about why, so we'll get there. But of course, you know, as always, I want to know a little bit about you, your background. I know you're currently up in beautiful New Hampshire, but how'd you get there? Yeah. Um, many, I think as probably a lot in our profession can relate, many turns of events got me to where I am. I am originally from Washington State and I went to vet school at Washington State and I worked my way across the country as part of my training. So I did um, a small animal rotating internship at Colorado State and then I was fortunate enough to get the residency in ophthalmology at NC State. And then I decided to stay there for a while after my residency as faculty. So I was there for about 10 years and then it was time for a change. And I had family and a different flavored personal future up in New Hampshire. And so I made my way up here and I've been here for about five years. I bit my tongue and to not say go wolf pack because it's, it's visceral. Um, where did you go to vet school? Oh, Washington State University was vet school. So I have loyalty there and to NC State both. For okay, sure. fair, fair. That's all right. I mean, we can share. And were you one of the vets that knew, you know, always or, or when did that kind of come about for you? Um, I always knew I wanted to be a vet from like 12 years old and I initially wanted to do just horses and then I kind of gravitated away from that but certainly still missed them. <laughs> As we and, do. <laughs> right? I mean, how can you, once, once horses are in your blood, they're kind of in your blood and that was one of the things that ended up drawing me to ophthalmology was getting to do all animals. And so I currently am both, well, when I was faculty at NC State and then also now I'm able to split my time half small animal, half horses. So it's um, incredibly fulfilling. And so that's kind of how once I decided away from being an equine vet, I still figured out that this was a way that I could still work on horses with some some pretty good frequency so that's brilliant yeah right with a lot of frequency because horses love to get eye problems it's they do one of their favorite <laughs> things to do they and, do and that kind of leads us to this article again it was published in the july 2019 clinicians brief and it's the increase and decrease intraocular pressure algorithm and, and again i thought it was really neat because it was an algorithm that takes this kind of this brain cloud of thoughts of where do we go around diagnosing and treating eye issues. And it, it navigates it into this beautiful flow chart that helps you kind of navigate that space. And, you know, I do think it can be a challenge. I've watched veterinarians I've worked with kind of struggling and have a lot of these common questions. And so I'm excited to break these things down a little bit with you today. And I know that navigating the result and diagnosing and treating interocular pressure abnormalities can be somewhat of a, a lack of confidence area for practitioners. Do you agree? I do agree. I think that's a couple different aspects to that. One is I think, as with any organ system, I think practitioners have a comfort level with eyes that is either good or maybe not as strong, just because it may not be their strong suit or maybe an area of interest. But then I think when you throw in the equipment that is really helpful, but can also be, I'll be completely honest for myself as well, at times frustrating. And you wonder, is it reliable or unreliable? Am I reliable or unreliable? 
So you have those external factors in addition to actually then trying to figure out what's going on and appropriately treat it. So I, I think you're absolutely right that it is it is definitely an area of maybe high nerves for some people. <laughs> well, and I, I let's be honest, I think a lot of people are freaked out by eyes, right? Like they, they don't want to touch eyes because their eyes water and squint. And mm-hmm. I, I know I can think of at least 10 people in my veterinary circle that are like, I don't do eyes. <laughs> <laughs> they immediately walk away. Yep. So I think that makes it even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that you are working in, you know, the mouth face area of your your pet who is probably not super participatory in, in the whole practice themselves. So you actually Absolutely. have a lot of challenges against you externally, let alone from a confidence standpoint, I feel like. And I guess that's just why I was really excited to break this topic down a little bit. And and see if we could unfold some of the difficulties that I think practitioners come across and, and ones that I think, you know, I hope you agree with too. And when I looked at this flow chart, you know, in the beginning, you, you introduce a patient who presents with blind, painful, cloudy, and or red eye discharge and tearing are not included in these presentation symptoms. Would, would they generally be included here? Sometimes they are. I think they, when we're talking about either really high or really low pressures, basically, I mean, kind of the nuts and bolts of that is they either have glaucoma or they have uveitis. And so those are intraocular diseases, which are going to lead to the blindness, painness, redness, cloudiness. Discharge and or tearing certainly can be present, but you could kind of consider them as more linked to ocular surface disease. And so the absence of tearing and discharge does not necessarily take us away from considering glaucoma or uveitis. But I think, so basically those two signs can be present, but I find they're frequently they're not as well. So I think the four kind of blind, painful, cloudy, red, those are going to be the four more hallmark general signs to be looking for. Okay. And and I mean, I think it's important because when I think about kind of triaging phone calls with clients, I think how frequently you hear, is there discharge? Is there drainage? Mm -hmm. And those being like the primary concerns for immediate attention, but maybe, maybe we, you know, want to be thinking differently about that outside of squinting and closing of the eye. Maybe we want to prioritize that red eye or that cloudy eye a little bit higher. That's a really, really good way to look at it, especially from, you're exactly right, from the triage phone call, owner calling you with panic or various levels of concern. You're absolutely right. I definitely don't want to disregard discharge or tearing, but I think ways to kind of narrow down, does the patient need to come in right now or can they take the next available appointment is to kind of dive in a little bit deeper to, is there pain? Is there cloudiness? Is there loss of vision? I think those can be that kind of discriminatory question answer to help decide what the right approach is for that patient. And I think one other thing to keep in mind with this too, is some of the breeds, if we're thinking, for example, glaucoma, some of the breeds, and not to make it too complicated, but some of the breeds that are predisposed to primary glaucoma may also be predisposed to KCS. Or if a dog does have glaucoma and has corneal edema, they may also have a corneal ulcer. So those things may also confound it and change the nature of the discharge and or tearing. And so again, not to ignore those, but I think you're absolutely right when it comes to triaging it on the phone. I'm a little bit less concerned if they're not painful, cloudy, red eye, or sudden loss of vision. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it makes this algorithm that you wrote 
really valuable from the front to the back to the clinic, in my opinion, because it's an important conversation to have from phone triage to your your technicians and, you know, kennel staff working in the boarding facilities because these are things they'll be looking for back there. So I, I just like I said, I, I, I got excited about this algorithm because I think it's applicable across the board. And, you know, nobody likes their eyes to hurt. We all know that's incredibly painful and it is really important. So I, I just love the the way that this can be applied throughout the entire clinic. So as we follow through that flow chart, you recommend several di- diagnostics kind of at that step one spot. Obviously, the elements of a thorough diagnostic eye exam, right? Interocular pressure determination is last in these steps. Is that is that the order you're executing in that litany or is there ever a time you change that particular order? It's important when determining the order of the, the tests that are done to consider which instrument you use to check the pressure. So the tone of pen, which is an applanation tonometer, and the tone of vet, which is a rebound tonometer, use different techniques to actually get that pressure reading. And with the tone of vet, which is the rebound tonometer, you're actually not supposed to have applied anything to the surface of the eye before you check the pressure. Meaning that if you've already stained the eye or if you've already done topical anesthetic, then the tone of vet readings, the rebound tonometer readings will be less accurate. Whereas with the tone of pen, you need to do topical anesthetic because it is more uncomfortable for them. So that order in the algorithm with the Schirmers, the fluorescein, and then the tonometry is appropriate if you're using a tone of pen. If you're using a tone of vet, then I would actually put the tone of vet pressure, the tonometry before doing fluorescein or topical anesthetic application. But what's set up in that box is the general approach or the correct order for the general approach. If, however, you have put on topical anesthetic already or done fluorescein and then you realize, wait a minute, I do actually want to check the pressure and all you have is a rebound, it's unlikely that it's going to be a clinically significant difference if you take the pressure with the rebound tone of vet after you've applied something to the surface of the eye. So in all actuality, it probably doesn't matter that much, but technically the tone of vet should be used before anything else is put on the eye. Otherwise, that's the appropriate order to do them in. And one other thing that I will say about that too is I'm a big believer in having a complete ophthalmic exam protocol rather than piecemealing and rather than saying, okay, a Shermer's is, for example, $10. Stain is, for example, $10. Pressures are, for example, $10. And then having the owner pick which of those they want to do because they may need all of them. And it can be difficult to say which one they do or don't need. And it's kind of an unfair position to put them in to basically make that decision. So I do feel like all those components of the exam are going to be very important and therefore should be included in a lump sum fee. That's my personal preference, just so that the Cocker Spaniel with dry eye and a corneal ulcer and glaucoma gets diagnosed with all three of those conditions rather than just one or two. That was incredibly meaningful. Like, I think that can be implied to so many places within the clinic that we can package things up. How often do, and and I say this 
regularly when I talk about preventatives, we we require our clients to go up front and become preventative experts in 14 seconds, and it seems really unfair. And we do it in the emergency clinic. Here are the 15 tests we want to do. Pick which ones you can afford. And you make such a great point. We put them in a really bad position, and it, it's not entirely fair. And when costs are a concern, we know they frequently are going to be. So can you just make that whole ophthalmologist exam appointment package? I love that, and I hope that that really, like, I'm like, rewind it, listen again, <laughs> play that back. That was really important and clients will really appreciate you for that. Now, this isn't really fair as a follow-up question, but I, I want to <laughs> ask it because I'm going to put you on that spot to pick one. If you like, I don't know, shipwreck on an island of dogs with eye problems with that <laughs> one, one test you've got to have with you. Oh, yes. Oh my gosh. That is a really, really unfair question. <laughs> um, but I certainly say if I could have all of the tests available, but then be able to pick just one per each dog on that island, then I would say it really, this is a very unfair way to answer it, it totally depends on the dog. So technically a red, cloudy, painful, blind eye could be red, cloudy, painful because of dry eye, because of a corneal ulcer, because of uveitis, because of glaucoma. And so kind of technically you do need all of those tests to figure that out. But if you have a six-year-old Boston Terrier or Basset Hound or Lab or one of these breeds that are predisposed to primary glaucoma and you look in their eye, they have a red, cloudy, painful, blind eye, and they have a dilated pupil, then I am happy to have just the tone of pen or tone of vet to use. And so it's, it, you know, if however they have a visible corneal defect, then I certainly want fluorescein. So I can, with my skill set, I'm lucky because I can look through and see which of those might actually be the most important. But without that same skill set, if you take a step back and look at the signalment of the animal, that can, I think, really help guide you to pick which one you might want for each, each individual animal. You know, it's funny because I've said this before and I've, I listened to a behaviorist one time speak and, and said, train the dog in front of you. And I thought it was important for the veterinary industry. And I've said it on here before is, you know, treat the dog in front of you. And so, yes. you know, to that exact point, you can't pick just the tool. And thank you for letting me put you on the spot about that. Because, you know, I, I want to know because there are, are so many things and they all do such different things. You're right. It wasn't totally fair. But I, I appreciate that we make you pick and not the client. And I think it's important, you know. And one other thing I want to ask, I think is sort of important. Is there ever a time that tonometry and interocular pressure determination is contraindicated or you don't want to do that? About the only time that you would not want to check the pressure is if you're looking at the cornea and there is a visible deep defect. So if the word divot or crater comes to mind <laughs> when you're looking at the cornea, that would be a scenario where you wouldn't need to check the pressure, where it would be potentially contraindicated to do so. Um, what I would be a little bit cautious about though too is that there are times when the cornea may actually be thicker than normal from like chronic KCS or maybe a previous significant corneal ulcer with a lot of scarring that might or even just really diffuse edema that doesn't mean that taking the pressure is contraindicated. It's certainly fine to take the pressure in those, but it can complicate your interpretation of it because some of those corneal pathologies 
can actually change the pressure reading. They don't change the pressure within the eye, but they change the estimation that the instrumentation is able to give you. So in those situations, it's not contraindicated, but it is more complicated. I would say the situation that it's contraindicated is when you have a really deep divot crater, something like that in the cornea. Okay. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Now, we we did focus mainly on the Tonopen for this discussion, and you mentioned some of the differences between the Tonopen and the Tonavet. What are the other tools for intraocular pressure measurements and, and some of the disadvantages and advantages? Between the two, the Tonopen gives you, so it requires topical anesthetic. It gives you flexibility a little bit more so with animal positioning. So like if you have the golden retriever that does that roll all over the floor and is so happy but certainly doesn't want to sit up, you can still get a Tonopen pressure with that. It may be a little bit different because of the level of the head relative to the heart and that sort of thing, but it'll give you a good estimation, whereas the tone of vet in that situation won't work because it has to be basically perfectly parallel to the the ground essentially. And so you can't really, you don't have as much flexibility with your positioning with the tone of vet as you do with tone of pen relative to the animal's positioning. One of the things that's nice about the tone of vet, the rebound tonometer, is that since it doesn't require topical anesthetic, if you have a patient in the hospital and you're doing like an an IOP curve, which we do very similarly to how you would do a glucose curve, it's actually safer for their cornea because they don't have to get topical anesthetic four, five, six, seven times over the course of a day because topical anesthetic can be quite toxic to the corneal epithelium. So those are some pros and cons between the two. There is also the Shiatz tonometer, which I do question. It's quite old, so some of the audience listening might not even know what it is, but it's basically it uses some weights and and kind of counterweights to, to see what the pressure in the eye is. And I would argue that that instrumentation is so difficult to use and to accurately then use a conversion chart to make sure that the pressure, you know, you have to, yeah, you have to use this whole conversion chart and everything. So I would argue that that instrumentation is certainly outdated at this point relative to the tone of pen and the tone of vet, both in terms of availability, ease of use, and accuracy. So if that's the only thing you have, then I would actually probably strongly recommend that you find a referral source or maybe down the street you can borrow a tone of pen or tone of vet from somebody else. So those, the tone of pen and the tone of vet are the kind of two go-tos. It's funny. One of my professors in tech school had the old fashioned kind of, sh- it's shiats, right? And yeah, in yeah. a case, and it was like very delicate. Yes. And you just say counterbalance. And I think that gives anybody like an idea of what you're right. dealing with and why That's exactly it right. might not be ideal against the eyeball. Like, I just no. feel like when you say counterbalance and eyeballs, it should just kind of. <laughs> bring to mind things you don't want to do. That's it just it just it is exactly what you're picturing with mm-hmm. counterbalances and and uh, thank heavens we have come past that. That's and that exactly right. Make your life a lot easier. And mm-hmm. you know the thing about it is is that none of it is really easy, you know. Right. And as a technician, I have to say, when intraocular pressures are detected, you know, I just think about restraining and it's always, you know, like the pug who doesn't mm-hmm. want anything to do with it has no neck in the first place. My doctor's mm-hmm. like, "Don't squeeze mom's petting the head while I'm doing it. 
help me out here and, and and let us know like kind of what are your tips and advice because I personally I find this really difficult and I I feel like a failing technician every time I'm trying to assist a doctor here. Yeah, yeah, it is it is very um, very skill set dependent being able to do it, but it is a skill set that can very easily be earned and learned and improved upon. So the thing that I would say is practice, practice, practice. And this is where all of our own animals become (laughs) willing or unwilling participants in our learning. At some point in our careers, we've all subjected our own animals to endless palpations and that sort of thing. And I think this is one of those situations where getting your own dog and your colleagues' dogs and cats in and practicing on them. So some animals who are familiar with you who may not view the vet as a scary place and who are pretty calm when they come in would be great. And then also, if some of them aren't calm when they come in, that's also pretty helpful too, because I think the key really is really that sense of calm to the animal. The calmer we can be with them, then the easier the process is. And I know that makes it sound like that's all you have to do. And it's not, it's certainly more complicated than that. But I think that's step one is just making sure that everyone is calm. Sometimes this is one of those scenarios where sometimes getting mom who's petting the head out of the way, maybe even out of the room can be helpful too. But I think the the key really is figuring out some dogs are really good with restraint over their nose. Some dogs are not. And then that, and then keeping their chin up. So if you hold around their nose to keep their chin up, some dogs are good with that. Sometimes it's just resting a hand under the chin to get the head up without actually putting a hand over the nose. I think that hand over the nose is one of those triggers. They either love it or they don't love it. But I think that that's the key. And then ideally, it doesn't involve so much having to worry about what you're doing around their neck. A lot of it ideally is just kind of really focusing more on their head, both the physical positioning of it as well as getting in their head and helping them be calm. What are your tips for dogs with no noses? Because I mean, those are the ones that I think I think about the most of where do I put my hands on their skull? And I think I I tend to just sort of hold sort of behind their ears and around their jaw. But am I doing it right as a technician? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's actually that tends to be the easiest way to get them. Because if you do go under their jaw, you're running the risk of being too close to their neck because oftentimes they have no nose and no chin, really, no jaw to, <laughs> to speak of. And if you have to get, you know, I think what happens in our clinic is our technician goes in and gets the Shermer stain pressures, history, all that sort of stuff. And the owner is helping them hold. And then they come back and they get me and then I go into the room with them. And there are times when they're like, you know what? Mom is trying her hardest, but she is not helping. And so then the two of us will get the pressures a little bit more easily. And so sometimes getting, like I said, getting the parent out of the way, not necessarily because they're ramping up the dog, but they may not be able to be the most effective restrainer, which I know I'm not an effective restrainer with my own dog on anything either. So I think that sometimes don't be afraid to call in a friend to help with the body a little bit too, so that you can, you know, focus a little more on the head as well. 
Sure. I mean, it, it, there's no easy way. And, you know, I love that number one, shout out for technician utilization. You know that I love that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, too, it, it's we kind of are doing the best that we can here. And I think that there is a lot to be said for just that calm aspect and, and mm-hmm. having that calm energy. And, and I think yep. those are great tips. And, and I also, I think it's important practice managers out there and people who do training. I can't say that I ever really specifically made that part of a training protocol. I, I can definitely remember checking off restraining for, you know, all of the, the venous holds and all mm-hmm. of the restraints, but maybe that isn't one we are including. And then your poor technicians and assistants are learning that in the room in front of mom and you're trying to instruct them exactly yeah. where to do it and it becomes awkward. So um, I really like that you mentioned including that just in that training process from the beginning and getting comfortable with it. It's maybe something that's getting overlooked and <laughs> that is, is a lot more difficult for the in the moment when you're in the room. So I love that you, you talk about including that ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I have to give you a shout out to that too, to recognizing that that could be a great part of overall training of technicians, you know, from the time, the first, when you're first in high school and you want to come and you want to hang out and you're, you know, seeing how things go. I think you're absolutely right from that moment on, you know, it's, it's, it, there are different ways to restrain for different types of exams. I think that's a really good point to bring up in general. Yeah. And to be thinking again of different exams as, as being important for what they are and, and to stop saying, this is how you hold for this. And this is how you hold, you know, we have such a tendency to lump things together Mm -hmm. and, and we don't look at that situation and saying, okay, when we have this type of situation in this situation, this is how we're going to proceed. We really can break things down better. And, you know, I know sometimes it seems minute, but we really are making a different patient experience, right? And we're making a different client experience. And, and in the end, I think we get different diagnostic and different patient outcomes. Yes. Yes. So it's important, you know, it's important. Mm -hmm. So kind of to that point, I I think about these with, with when we get readings. So again, as the frustrated technician, I appreciate you kind of giving that time, but you know, what do you feel like are the best practices when you are getting the readings? Because I've seen different veterinarians take a certain number and average them together. What are the different means of obtaining the final number you go with? Yeah. Yeah. So Usually what I end up saying, it kind of depends a little bit on your comfort level, your skill set, as well as how reliable you kind of in your gut feel like the readings were on that patient. So if it's a dog that's sitting there, you know, doing what I call the statue hold and basically holding as I open for you and you get your readings, you can be pretty comfortable that your first readings are going to be the ones that you want. If, however, there is more struggling, then that's going to certainly be a difference. But usually what our technicians do and what we advise them to do and we help them with if need be is the the tone of pen and tone of vet are each going to take a series of readings and average them. And so we have them get three averages, meaning Usually like with the tone of vet, for example, it's six readings and then you get an average. So we have them do six readings, get an average, do six readings, get an average. If those two averages are the same, then we don't have them do a third. If those two averages are really far off, then we have them do a third. Of those three averages, the lowest one is the one that you can take because you can't falsely lower the pressure. You can falsely elevate it with all the things that we've just talked about with the animal being excited, worked up with restraint, difficulty, that sort of thing, but you can't falsely lower it. If you get, for example, an average of 18 on the first one, an average of 22 on the next one, and then an average of 21 on the third, 18 is your answer. You don't have to average those three averages. So where it gets difficult is if you get 18, 
35 and 27, then yes, the 18 technically still is right. But if there's that much variation between or among all three readings, I usually advise getting another one just to make sure that you're kind of trending down closer toward that 18. It's good to know though, like, cause as somebody who has gotten readings that far apart, yeah. that, that you're have. saying that, <laughs> that makes me feel better that that is absolutely something we can expect. We're not doing something wrong. So outside of what we've talked about that cause elevated readings, and we've talked about, you know, not really getting low readings, but that there can be complications associated with thickened corneal times. Are there, are there any other false readings that we want to be aware of? Those are really going to be the main ones. So the restraint things where they end up being too high and they're actually not that high. And then the other option is going to be if there's a lot of corneal variability. And the difficulty with corneal variability, meaning like corneal scarring and fibrosis or really diffuse corneal edema or a lot of corneal vascularization, is you can't predict what direction it's going to falsely read, meaning it may falsely read lower, it may falsely read higher. So in those situations, the actual pressure reading becomes less important. It's great if you can get something, but you, it can be really hard to count on it. But the actual reading becomes less important and doing what you mentioned earlier, treating the patient in front of you becomes the key. And meaning that if you have a cornea with a whole lot of corneal edema and you're getting readings of let's go back to the 18, 27, 35, you take another one and it's 32 and you're, you know, you're, you're not really narrowing your window very much, then you'd say, okay, well, is it a breed that may have glaucoma? Is it a painful blind eye? Is the eye enlarged? Is the pupil large? You look at all the other signs and if the other signs say this eye has glaucoma, even if you can't get a reading that you can hang your hat on, you say this eye has glaucoma and I'm going to treat it. Are there any breeds that have variability consistently throughout their readings? That's a great question. Nope. They should all, all dogs are pretty much 10 to 20 is normal. I should have said that probably at some point in the beginning too. 10 to 20 is normal millimeters of mercury. And there will be variation throughout the day. So like over a 24 hour period, they will have some variability, but it should fall within that 10 to 20 or maybe slightly out. I mean, they're always going to be a little bit of outliers, but there's not any breed that is going to be, um, you know, is going to have greater variability or traditionally ride higher or traditionally ride lower. Older dogs of any breed will go a little bit below 10 and still be normal. And what about cats? Cats are the same. Yep. Cats are 10 to 20. And we pretty much have all the same applicable when we're going through this algorithm. It all applies the same regardless, right? Cats Correct. and dogs. Yep. Yep. It does. Yeah. I know I talk dogs so much more because glaucoma is something that we right. much more frequently recognize in dogs. But yes, cats, cats, well, cats don't follow any rules, but, <laughs> but basically they follow the same rules as dogs do as much if as they're, If, if they're going to follow the rules, it will be those. And, yes. you know, so then what about contraindications? So, you know, I think about, a, you know, when, when we go through this algorithm, we go through and we determine glaucoma, uveitis or not uveitis. How comfortable can the general practitioner feel about this treatment? And, you know, are there any times that treatment is not recommended? Yeah. So this is where I think it gets a little bit into the good communication with the owner and the goals and the desires of the owner. So if there's that much question as to what the underlying diagnosis is, 
it's important not just for that eye, but for the other eye. So if we're assuming that only one eye is affected, it's also important to get a really good handle on the diagnosis for the healthy eye, because if it is, for example, primary glaucoma, we're worried that the healthy eye is predisposed too. So if there's any question about what the actual diagnosis is, that is a very appropriate time to have a conversation with the owner about referral, about saying, you know what, I can treat what I see. I don't know what the diagnosis is, but I can treat it. But if I don't treat it, these are the potential ramifications of it, i.e. a blind, painful eye that may not be salvaged. Or you know what, you can go and you can talk to somebody who may be able to figure it out and, and then have more targeted therapy. So I think There certainly are contraindications if, for example, you have a uveitis eye and you want to treat it with a prostaglandin analog, that can actually be a contraindication, but a prostaglandin analog is not a contraindication for glaucoma treatment. So there are situations where one drug that can be really good in one circumstance can actually be bad in another. And if you're kind of on that precipice, then I think that's a very appropriate time to bring up the idea of referral with an owner. You want to hire great people? Find them from Clinician's Brief Career Center. Connect with candidates who grow your business and effectively care for your patients and your clients. Post your job today at cliniciansbrief.com backslash career dash center. All right, that brings us to keep it brief. And there is no pressure here because we rarely ever keep it brief. (laughs) Uh, Tell me what the most common mistakes we are seeing in general practice and, and what effects are they having on results? I think the most common mistake actually goes back to what we were just talking about, which is not having a clearly defined diagnosis. And so I don't think that goes, that doesn't speak so much to the results of the IOP, but it does speak to the results of patient care. And again, treating, it'd be be great if we could treat them for possibly both and not adversely impact either and potentially just kind of do a a very broad approach, but it doesn't always work that way. And so I think um, not having an accurate diagnosis is probably the biggest difficulty. It's difficult to get to an accurate diagnosis at times, but then that's also, I think, probably that leads to probably the biggest amount of mistakes in treatment and management. Well, you actually did a great job in keeping it brief. And, you know, honestly, I think that that is probably exactly what practitioners are feeling, too. And it kind of leads back to what you were saying about referring is is when that confidence is not there. Right. We want to to know when to work within it and to work with fantastic practitioners like you. And in the past, we've talked about the importance of that alliance of, of working with really good referral centers because you are an extension of the general practitioner. So when you give us tools like this and you give us knowledge like this, it becomes incredibly important. Our general practitioners can be as knowledgeable as they can be within their space and then also feel comfortable knowing when to bring other practitioners in. So I really appreciate that. Good, good. Well, thank you. And we have, I have had a ball talking about this again. I really appreciate the algorithm, the increase and decreased intraocular pressures in July, 2019 clinicians brief. Dr. Allison Claude, thank you again so much for your time and all of the information today. It has been a blast speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Becky. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe 
rate and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.